Welcome back to this week's From the Bridge. I'm Rick Jones, the captain of Fishbait Marketing and your host for all things from the world of corporate sponsorship and event marketing. You know, I love March Madness better than any other sporting event, and I really miss not having it last season. Here's hoping the virus will not prevent us from another year of college basketball. We did get some good news last week uh, that college basketball will start in late November. Uh, We're still trying to determine about the early season tournaments, but it looks like we're going to have a regular season, and hopefully that will lead us to March Madness. Now, speaking of college basketball, we recently lost an icon, Tom Jernstead, who died way, way too early at age 75. Tom did more to build the Final Four into the monumental cultural event it is than probably anybody I know. And my dear friend Jim Host will be here again to talk about Tom, Jim's partnership with Tom that built March Madness, and some other things relating to college basketball. We'll jump back up on the old soapbox and tell you about another wonderful place to eat on the road with Rick. One of my all-time heroes is the late, great coach John Wooden. Coach Wooden won 10 national championships in 12 years, a record that I believe will never be broken. But Coach Wooden's legacy is so much more than winning basketball games. He was a teacher, an author, and a philosopher. Many of you may remember Coach Wooden's famous Pyramid of Success, Now, I carry a card in my wallet that Coach Wooden gave to me. So here's some lessons I learned from Coach that are on this card. On one side of the card, Coach first listed two sets of three that he learned from his father, Joshua Wooden. The Woodens grew up on a farm in rural Indiana. The first set are what he calls the nevers. Number one never lie. Number two, never cheat. Number three, never steal. Boy, could we all use some of that right now in this past summer of riots, political posturing in a divided nation. The next set are the don'ts. Number one, don't whine. Number two, don't complain. Number three, don't make excuses. How about those words of wisdom? On the other side of the card are Coach Wooden's seven-point creed. Here's his creed. Number one, be true to yourself. Number two, help others. Number three, make every day your masterpiece. I really love that one. I love the fact that what Coach Wooden called the precious present. Today is the only day that really matters. What are you going to do with today? And he says, make every day your masterpiece. Number four, drink deeply from good books, especially the Bible. We're actually recording today in my office, and I have probably a thousand books in here. Uh, I love to read, and I guess I got that from my mama, who gave me books at an early age. But Coach Wooden was a consummate reader, and he encouraged us all to, as he said, drink deeply from good books. Number five is another one that I love. Make friendship a fine art. Wow, how about that? That's, that's pretty cool. Uh, 
Number six, build shelter against a rainy day. And he says there you ought to have faith in God for something because rain is going to come to all of us. And number seven, he says, pray for guidance and counsel and give thanks for your blessings each day. Now think about those lessons. That's a full life. That's a rewarding life. That's a selfless life. And that, in a nutshell, was Coach John Wood. Earlier this year, we had my mentor, Jim Host, on the podcast talking about his new book, Changing the Game. I'm honored to have Jim back today to visit with us again about his life and legacy, and more importantly, his friendship with the late Tom Jernstead. Let's welcome Jim back to The Bridge. Jim, thanks for being with us again today. Well, I'm glad to always be with you, Rick. Well, when you were last with me, we discussed your terrific uh, new book, Changing the Game. It, it is, a, a ter- again, a, just a terrific book. And not only have I read it, Charlotte's read it, Ryan's read it. And uh, we've got a lot of young college students who fortunately listen to our pad- podcast, as many of them are doing remote classes. So tell everybody how they can get the book. Well, the best way to get it is to order it through jimhostbook.com. Uh, it comes directly to the group that's handling it for me, and they bring it to me, and I sign them all. Uh, and uh, then they're immediately mailed out to whoever uh, has ordered it. All right. For those listening out there, you need to get this book. If you have any aspirations of working in college athletics or working in our business at all, this is a roadmap of a, of a life and a business and how to do things. And so... I need you all to order the book, Changing the Game by Jim Host. Uh, Get it today. Um, We've been talking a lot today, Jim, about college basketball. We got the good news from the NCAA about starting the season. You know, that's great news for all of us. Um, But at the same time, we we got the sad news about your good friend and my good friend, Tom Jernstead. I want to talk a little bit about Tom and your friendship and the contributions that he made to college basketball. People don't realize uh, what a influence uh, that he has been uh, on the history of college basketball, especially the most recent history. He served as the guiding force of the NCAA Men's Basketball Committee for 38 years. I was involved with him on 35 of those 38 years, and uh, God never made a better person, uh, never made a person who served uh for all the right reasons, uh, I never knew him to make a decision or make a recommendation that wasn't the right recommendation for the game of college basketball. Uh, he he labored over a lot of things. Uh, we would talk about those things. I never uh, disclosed uh, during that entire process any confidential dis- uh, conversations that he had with me. Uh, including uh, the day before he died, we spent, and that was two weeks ago this past Friday, uh, he, he called and uh, he had driven to a Dunkin' Donuts place in Jupiter uh, where, we, where he lived and where I lived with my wife, Pat, for 24 years. And he lived on the fifth floor. We lived on the 10th floor. And uh, he would drive Dunkin' Donuts and uh, then leave his car there and walk. And sometimes he walked uh, 10 minutes. Sometimes he walked a half hour. Sometimes he walked an hour. He would then come back to his car. He would go in Dunkin' Donuts and buy 
a sack full of donut holes, and then he would drive to uh, to Publix uh, or to a uh, Speedway gas station, whichever one he decided to go to where the newspapers were, and he would buy a USA Today, a Palm Beach Post, a New York Times, uh, other newspapers, to, and then he would sit in his car uh, wherever he was, and he would read the papers and had a legal pad with him and, and would make notes. On the Friday before he died, uh, he had just done that, and he as he called and asked me questions about uh, what I thought about the college football season and what was happening and uh, would teams actually play and uh, disturbed about how the Big Ten had handled themselves. This was before uh, the Big Ten decided to play again. And uh, the next morning, uh, he died. And uh, he, he had done the same thing. He had just on Saturday, a week ago this past Saturday, he drove uh, to Dunkin' Donuts, walked, and then uh, drove to Publix, went in and bought the newspapers, came out, was started reading them, and just died. And uh, according to his son, Derek, who I was very close to, uh, uh, the autopsy showed that his heart just stopped. And uh, he was 75 years old, far too young to die. And uh, the amount of tributes that still are coming in from people is uh, warms my heart because it uh, portrays him exactly as he was, a gentle giant. He was so thoughtful. Um, uh, again, and I use the, the term thoughtful of, of what he ultimately the decisions he made were never cavalier, and they well, were and they were never selfish. They were the difference. Yeah. The difference between the way a lot of people are doing things today and the way he did things was that he would not make a decision or make a recommendation without talking to various people. I know how many times, for example, he talked to Jim Haney, who you worked with very closely yep. in ABC. I know how often he talked to top coaches in the business to get their pulse. Of various things, uh, there were always uh, there were always tough decisions that the committee had to make uh, and for the whole future of college basketball. But he was deeply involved in the rules structure. Uh, he he uh, Ed Stites, uh, who's a name that most people don't have a clue uh, is, was a longtime uh, person associated with Springfield College, which is where the uh, game actually started under Dr. Naismith. And uh, Ed Stites was uh, the guy who uh, wrote the rules having to do with a three-point shot, uh, the 24-second clock, 30-second uh, clock, I should say, 30-second clock, and a number of other things like that. And he would work very closely with Ed Stites. He worked very closely with a, a lot of other people. who, uh, And he would, he would draw a consensus. He was a consensus builder. And he never went into a meeting. Uh, that I was ever involved in, where he wasn't totally, totally prepared. Well, he I know this. Every college basketball coach owes him a debt of gratitude because the money that's in the game now is directly related to the influence that Tom had. Um, he, he learned under he learned under a guy that was a great mentor to me, and that's Walter Byers. Uh, Walter Byers to this day is still the single smartest individual I was ever around in my life. He was uh, the executive director of the NCA from 1971 to 1986. Uh, Tom used to quote different things to me that Walter had said or uh, had inferred. And uh, 
uh, he he was a disciple of Walter Byers, and Byers was uh, was a person who really remained in the background. Few people knew him, uh, except people who needed to know him, who were involved in the uh, management of the NCAA. But Tom Tom used a lot of quotes from Walter over a period of time that helped guide him. I remember Bob Knight saying one time, with total disdain for the NCAA, Walter Byers ran this organization for 30 years with a secretary. <laughs> I mean, it was like, why do we have 8,000 people at the NCAA right now? Um, Good point. Well, Tom, Tom uh, uh, the very first NCAA Final Four I was involved in, I uh, wasn't called the Final Four yet, it was called the Division One Men's Basketball Championship, was 1975 in San Diego. And... Uh, and there were two executives of the NCAA, Tom Jernstead and Dave Kaywood. Dave ran all the media and the press and and uh, uh, press row, et cetera. And uh, he had a committee of volunteers that worked with him. And Tom ran the tournament and and the and reported to the committee. And uh, I remember the very first one uh, in San Diego. Uh, uh, the two of them stood on the floor. Uh, made decisions having to do, consulted with uh, the chair of the committee, uh, and uh, and the tournament ran great. And today, what are there, two, two, 250 individuals involved in the tournament? Unbelievable compared to what it was then. Well, we started the podcast today with what I call lessons from Coach Wooden that I learned, and it's interesting that you mentioned the 75th. The 75 uh, Final Four, that was his last um, Final Four. Remember, he Kentucky had upset an undefeated Indiana team that had beaten them very badly in the regular season, and, and, and Joe Hall had a, had a great team uh, and got to the championship game. And, of course, right after the semifinals, Coach Wooden announced that this would be his last game. <laughs> and, well, I was, I was, I was, I was in the five-five. We, we had done the Kentucky-Syracuse game, which was the first game of the semifinals, and, uh, and Louisville uh, should have beaten UCLA. They were down by one point with three seconds left to go, and, and uh, a guy who had been a free-throw shooter the entire year, 90% free-throw shooter, meet, missed the first of one-and-one. And Denny Crum came within one point of beating his old boss, and Coach Wooden walked off the floor, and I remember, like it was yesterday, going in the press room. In the press room, Rick, in those years, uh, you could put your office at your home in it, and uh, there, there were probably 20 people in the press room, and I remember Coach Wooden going up and sitting down and leaning into the mic, and his first comment was, uh, Monday night will be my final game, and, uh, and I think it was uh, the, the guy who was a Sports Illustrated guy, his name escapes me right now, but he, he said, Coach, what did you say? He said, I said, Monday night will be my final game. He, I found out from his daughter, uh, who I got to know uh, when, uh, when they started some awards for Coach Wooden, uh, she told me that uh, he had not told the family I know from Gary Cunningham, who was his chief assistant sitting next to him, that he hadn't told the staff. He apparently made the decision walking off the floor after that game that he was he was going to that Monday night was going to be his final game, and it was. 
Yeah, I got to know Nan, uh, his daughter, later on when we did the Final Four Coaches Club. And after he passed, she would come every year, which I, I really appreciated, you know, that she would make the effort to come to the Final Four and make the effort to come to the to the Final Four Coaches Club where we honored those coaches that had, had coached in the in the Final Four. You know, going back to Tom, I mean, I, I, number one, I've told this story on, uh, on this podcast a couple of times, but, you know, I owe so much of my career to you. Uh, you know, when I got fired, um, you were the first guy I called. I'll never forget that. You said, Rick, pack your bags, get Charlotte, drive to Jupiter, <laughs> leave now. <laughs> and, of course, I, 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 Charlotte said, what would you say? I said, I said, yes, sir, let's go pack our bags. And, uh, <laughs> and, and we drove down, and you and I sat on your balcony overlooking the ocean, and we made up fish bait. We made it up. And... You know, a year later, I had I had been doing a, a few projects for the NABC, and and Tom had gone to Jim Haney, and said, "Jim, we, we need a better relationship with the coaches." Um, and 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 Jim was, of course, all in favor of it. And, and he said, "But you need to make a change. You, you need to get a new marketing person." And Jim said, "Well, who should I get?" And Tom said, "You need to get Rick Jones." And I mean. So he 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 played such a huge role in my life in in making well, that statement. Well, he, he, yeah, he did he did that because uh, he asked me about you, and I said, "Who could you get any better? Uh, who was a coach himself? Who understands college basketball? Understands the genesis of it? Who's been at the at a small uh, Division One institution, and who and who's been at the epitome of Division One institutions in the ACC mm-hmm. and." Who could be better that you could get than have him? And and obviously, uh, time worked out. And Tom, Tom would would uh, ask me various things, and uh, he would ask others various things. But uh, uh, it was obvious that NABC needed some strength in marketing, and you gave him that. Well, I, I, my last podcast that that we actually released this week, I talked about collaboration being a lost art. <laughs> um. People don't want to ask for advice, and I, I just don't get it. I, you know, I mean, why, why? you know, somebody said the, the other day that it's dangerous when you when you want to be the smartest guy in the room. I, I want to be the dumbest guy in the room. If you're uh-huh. the, if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong room. Um, and and you know, and Tom, not unlike you would go to people and say, what do you think? Let's, let's, let's put this into context. Let's, let's look at this differently. How does this, you know, not only meet our objectives short term, but what is it going to mean to us long term? Um, and, and, and so I want to go back now to kind of to your, you know, your partnership with the NCAA, because you saw so many seismic changes, you know, from going, from a few teams to now 68 teams, from going, you know, in a non-shot clock to shot clocks to three-point shots to to all the things. Um, I, I, how did you start uh, with the NCAA? Well, um, in uh, 1975, at the uh, at the Division One Men's Basketball Championship in San Diego, uh, you could. Uh, take a cannon and shoot it down the street in San Diego and not hit anybody who cared about the NCAA tournament, even though UCLA was in it. It was, it was hard to believe, but it wasn't a sellout. Uh, and uh, I remember like it was yesterday, uh, I was uh, on the floor and I asked 
Tom Jernstead and Dave Kaywood, how much is mutual paying you for the radio rights? And I said, they, and they looked at each other and said, well, you're paying us more for Kentucky than they're paying us. And uh, I said, uh, well, my intelligence tells me that uh, my intelligence, my, my not that that's the wrong word, my, my research tells me that you guys are getting somewhere in the neighborhood of of uh, twenty three or twenty four thousand dollars total rights fees from everything you do, including people like me, and I was paying them seven thousand dollars for the UK rights because we reported all the stations, and I knew that a lot of the people that were getting the rights weren't reporting all their stations. And so, uh, make a long story short, uh, I said I'll give you thirty thousand dollars. And how many people do you have taken over? How many people do you have administering the rights? And they said two full time. And I said, and I'll take the responsibility for them. So I'll pay for all your people. I'll take all the responsibility and I'll build a network and it won't be called the host network or the mutual network. It'll be called the NCA network because we need to build a brand of the NCA tournament. They looked at each other and they said, uh, well, that's interesting. And that's all they said the next Monday morning, uh, I got it after the term was over with, after a week had gone by, I got a call out of the blue host. This is Walter Byers be in my office tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. And that's all he said. Well, I didn't even know where the NCA offices were. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I found out and uh, drove uh, from, from uh, the airport in Kansas city, which is a KCI airport. And it took me 30, 25, 25 to 30 minutes to drive from the airport to Overland Park, Kansas. And, uh, and I made sure I knew where the office was. And the next morning I was there 15 minutes early. Uh, and, uh, and he looked at me and he said, I've checked you out and I'm going to give you an opportunity of a lifetime. And I said, what's that? He said, I want you to, uh, take over the right for the NCA tournament. I'm going to give you a one year trial. And your objective is to, we, we had 72 stations on the mutual network. I want you to build it the 200 stations. And, uh, uh, and he said, and, and I'm counting on you to make the NCA radio network something worthwhile. And, uh, he said, and it's going to cost you $30,000. Uh, and I, my best guess is you don't have the ability of being able to put $30,000 up front. So I'm going to ask you to get a bond to make sure you can pay us. And uh, and and the rest, as they say, Rick is history. So well, it's it's uh, fascinating, you know, that you said that 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 championship wasn't sold out. If you look at this 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 men's division one championship, Kentucky, Louisville, Syracuse, and UCLA. I mean, uh, you don't get more blue bloods in college basketball than that. But it shows how far backwards they were at that time well the next year in 1976 the tournament was in philadelphia and they played at the old spectrum and uh and it wasn't sold out in fact tom jernstead came to me uh before the semifinals and i was sitting and i was producing the broadcast with my headsets on and tap on my shoulders and he said do you need any extra tickets <laughs> can you imagine no. him saying that today do you need any extra tickets and he said if you need extra tickets, i got a few extra tickets if you need any uh, well, it's too, I said it's too late for today, but I sure could use some for Monday night. And, of course, Monday night, uh, they're still undefeated. Indiana played uh, Michigan for the national championship. Uh, but uh, things have, I mean, it's changed so dramatically. The biggest single change, I think, in the tournament was the decision that the committee, and led by Tom, made 
to you take it to a dome in 1982 at the dome in New Orleans, which was the first time it was in a dome. And I remember Tom calling me and he said, uh, Jim, uh, when you, can you come to New Orleans? And I told him I'd be there for the next couple of days. And he said, well, I want you to do something with me. What's that? I want you to go up. I want you to walk up with me to the top of the dome and tell me what you think. And uh, he, he, was, he was still laboring over how to sell the tickets. And so they, they put a thing on the tickets. And I don't think this has ever been written anywhere. And they put distant view on tickets. So in other words, <laughs> if somebody bought, if somebody bought what, what they consider to be a bad ticket, uh, they, they, uh, uh, it was their own fault at that point. Right. And they, <laughs> and they put it on the ticket and it was big print distant view. So people couldn't come back on it because the NCA was scared to death that people would, it would be really negative publicity. Well, it wasn't a negative publicity. It was people who had a chance to be, uh, to see uh, a great game that uh, Michael Jordan won uh, when North Carolina beat Georgetown in the finals of the of the of the uh, tournament, and, and it was and that was also the first year it was called the Final Four. Well, let's go back the year before. The, the year before in '81 was my first Final Four. I was the basketball coach at Swanee, and and uh, I had a chance to you know as a member of the NABC to go to the convention, and it was in Philadelphia. That was Virginia, LSU. North Carolina and Indiana, and that was the Final Four where Friday morning, uh, uh, President Reagan had gone to the Hilton uh, DuPont Circle to give a speech that morning and got shot. Um, and and so you were in the in the midst of all that. Uh, you know there was the the agonizing decision about whether to play or not. Tell me a little bit about about what went on in that. In that well, uh, that was uh, NBC. It was NBC's final year of doing the tournament. And uh, uh, I remember like it was yesterday, uh, Wayne Duke was the chairman of the committee. And, and, and I, my seat uh, having to do with the NCAA radio network was right, always either close, was always close to one of the two benches. So uh, I witnessed uh, a conversation between uh, Dick Eversole from the NCAA NBC and uh, Wayne Duke and Tom Jernstead, and they, they they talked about whether they should play the game or not, and they and they were having this conversation while the consolation game was going on. And people say consolation game. I didn't know they did that. They used to have a consolation game before every, uh, and and that consolation game was uh, I remember LSU playing, and and uh, I remember that the game going on, and nobody was really paying any attention to the game. People were all in conversations all the way around the press area about whether the championship game should be played. And they went, uh, they, Wayne Duke and Tom Jernstead and uh, NBC Eversol went off the floor and uh, they uh, went into a back room, which the NC always had uh, a private area for meetings. And I remember Tom coming out and he got my eye and he put his thumbs up, which meant to me they were going to play the game. They had called. I found out later on from Tom that they had called the White House. Uh, they had called the, to find out exactly the status of the president. And apparently the president had woken up and had, and had uttered words and, it, and the White House felt like he was going to live. And the big the, the thing is, if, if they had found out <coughs> that the president was in such dire shape, that he wasn't going to live, there would not have been that national championship game that night. 
I remember uh, one of the great stories about President Reagan was when they when they wheeled him into the to the operating room. You know, number one, he, he didn't realize he'd been shot, and 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 you know they got him in the thing, and then they realized hey, he's bleeding and he's 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 very you know he's 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 in pretty critical shape. But there's the legendary story where. You know, they rolled him into the operating room, and he looks up, and he looks at all the doctors and nurses, and he says, tell me you're all Republicans. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and one of the doctors leans down and says, Mr. President, today we're all Republicans. But, that, you know, what a great sense of humor and, and you know, grace under literal fire in that. Um, but that Final Four was so interesting because— Number one, Virginia, with Ralph Sampson, had beaten North Carolina, I want to say three times. They'd be- beaten them in the home-and-home and, home and and beaten them in the ACC tournament, and they meet in the semifinals, and they lose. North Carolina wins. And, of course, um, uh, Indiana had Isaiah Thomas and, a, and, a, and Randy Whitman, a great, great club, and, and, and then ended up winning that championship game for Knight's second championship. Uh, and then we go to – the Dome in 82. And then in 83, we went back to a smaller venue because we went to um, the pit um, in um, in Albuquerque. Right. And that's yep. when that's when Valvano and NC State made that great run. Yeah, yeah. That's probably uh, the toughest NCAA. Uh, that was our – that was our uh, – uh, I remember that they built the press area up outside of the Dome, uh, outside of the pit in a tent area outside. So in order to get to the floor, you had to walk up the steps. There was no elevator. So you had to walk up the steps and down the steps. And uh, that was a tough, tough place for a lot of the reporters, a lot of the people who were part of the press group to navigate uh, up there uh, and down. And uh, and I think people pretty much made up their mind after that one uh, that having it in a dome was such a bad thing because at the domes, they always had the press area and and the media uh, accessibility right close to the floor. And then I think they went to the Kingdom in 84 when um, Georgetown won. And, well, George, and- Kentucky, Kentucky played the worst half of basketball uh, that I've ever seen a Kentucky team play. It wasn't worse from the point of view of mechanics. They couldn't shoot. They hit three out of 38, I think it was, three out of 39, uh, in the second half, and they were ahead at halftime by seven. I think it was by seven uh, over a really good Georgetown team. Uh, and Michael Graham, who was the enforcer uh, on the front line for Georgetown, totally shut down uh, the Kentucky Twin Towers, uh, uh, Melvin Turpin and Sam Bowie. And uh, Kentucky had a heck of a team. Uh, 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 Dickie Beal was a uh, captain of that team, a little uh, fire plug guard. And uh, uh, and it was it was unbelievable. I think it was three out of thirty three, three out of thirty four in the second half. Kentucky, Kentucky well, couldn't hit the broadside of a bar. Well, well, the, the, the gods, the basketball gods, gave it back to Georgetown the next year because they play Villanova in in your hometown in Lexington, and I think Villanova <laughs> shot like eighty nine percent or something. Well, I mean, Villanova only missed one shot in the whole second half yeah, of the game. Yeah, uh, un- unbelievable shooting performance if they had to do it all over again they could never shoot that well no no but it's really interesting if you look at the the dichotomy of the year before when kentucky couldn't throw it in the ocean from the pier and the following year villanova simply cannot miss i mean they just and and rick that's the game that's a great game of college basketball of course they didn't have the shot clock yet 
I went into the college basketball uh, Hall of Fame with Patrick Ewing the same year. And Patrick and I got to be, during that process, got to be really good friends. And we sat at that luncheon that day and I said, give me the, your assessment of the team that uh, lost in Lexington and the team that won in, in the kingdom. And he said, the team that lost in Lexington was far better than the team that won in the kingdom. I said, you're kidding. He said, no. He said, I thought we would win it hands down, especially when five, three of the four teams in the, in the championship were from the big East. He said, we'd beaten all of them during the year. And he said, and I knew we were far superior. He said, but I could not believe that every time uh, Villanova threw a shot up, it went in. Well, you, you had the radio rights. When did you, when did you create the corporate partner program? Because that's another uh, seismic change in basketball. 1980, 1981, uh, I, I had made up my mind that I was never really going to be able to make the kind of money that it needed to be made to pay the rights fees and pay all the expenses of the tournament. And I had uh, had a background with Procter & Gamble uh, in the uh, in the uh, 60s and uh, uh, had learned about uh, uh, branding and shelf facings and so on and so forth. And the one th- really thing I learned was that if we came out with a five cent off 24 pack tide, uh, meaning 24 boxes to a case and five cents off, we would, we would come out first and then Colgate would match it and Lever would match it. And uh, we had no competitive advantage for, for, uh, for a week or two. I mean, we had competitive advantage for a week or two, and, but we had no competitive advantage long term. And I'm, so I'm laying in bed thinking about how can I improve sales and improve stuff and so and it came to me like a light bulb went on said, what about if we could get uh, a brand uh, to become a corporate par- corporate sponsor of the Final Four? Uh, what if we could get a brand to do that and without doing anything toward prostituting signage in the arena, which uh, both Tom Jernstead and Walter Byers were adamantly opposed to. They wanted it to be like an Olympic site, be totally commercial free inside. And I said, but the thing we can do, we can really build the branding of the NCAA tournament if we can have a official sponsor of the NCAA tournament. So uh, I was standing with Walter Byers at the Union League in, 19, uh, in uh, 1981. Uh, this is, again, the year that uh, President Reagan got shot. And this was Sunday night, and this was uh, before the president was shot on Monday. That's uh, right, Monday morning. That's and, right. Uh, and uh, we were standing at the Union League that Water Buyers always had a Sunday night event for NBC and for uh, members of the NCAA Executive Committee, a bunch of presidents. And he invited me for the first time to that event. And so he was standing by the uh, fireplace. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And I went up to him and I said, Walter, uh, it's time for corporate sponsors and NCAA tournament. He looked at me and he said, host? over my effing dead body. Uh, and, and he walked away from me. And, and I, so I said, uh, well, I'm going to keep in touch with you about it. And he said, you do anything, anything you want. So I sent him a letter uh, outlining why it would work. And every month I followed up by sending him another letter about why this would make sense. It will not commercialize the tournament. It will elevate the brand of the NCAA tournament. It will elevate the brand uh, eventually of the Final Four, uh, et cetera. So six months, he never answered me. Uh, 
one time he sent me a note and just said, duly noted. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so, so then out of the blue, he called me and he said, host, remember that thing you were talking to me about at the Union League about corporate sponsors? I said, yeah. He said, be in my office tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. Goodbye. And uh, so I went out and he sat in his office uh, with uh, without any notes in front of him. And, and of course, I'm super prepared. And uh, he said, uh, how much money do you think you can get from selling one of those things? And what I didn't know at that time was that the uh, College Football Association, CFA, which Chuck Dinas had started and which uh, had won the decision about uh, uh, schools uh, being able to uh, understand their own uh, power uh, by the fact that the NCAA couldn't control college football through NCAA television, uh, which they had. It used to be a NCAA football game of the week, and, uh, and uh, ABC, through those, in those years, were in Arledge, would uh, say we're going to have an NCAA football game of the week, uh, Nebraska and Oklahoma, and that would be the only game on television. And so Georgia and Texas primarily, and several other schools, uh, filed a lawsuit well, what I didn't know was that uh, Walter had picked up intelligence that the CFA was going to move to take over college basketball and he saw, and the tournament and use the same process. And so, uh, uh, and I found that out later on, but the reason he called me was he wanted to know how much money I thought I could uh, make. Um, and I said, well, I think I could sell it for $250,000. He said, okay, I get half, the NCAA gets half, you get half. And uh, you got to pay all your expense out of your half. And he stood up. This was 15 minutes into the meeting. And he stood up and he said, uh, a deal? And I said, yes, sir. And I shook his hand. He said, that's fine. He said, I'll put something in writing to you. And uh, that was the end of it. was 15 minutes. Well, I, I then had a really close friend who had been with P&G that I had trained uh, who came to Lexington uh, once a year with a group of his friends to play poker and go to Keeneland. And so I would help him get tickets, uh, good uh, tickets at Keeneland. And so uh, I called him and he said, I got a great idea for you. One of the guys that's coming is a guy you'll know who you work with that, uh, and he's with Gillette. And so anyway, I, I ran it by him and, and it so happened it was in a window, a time frame during the year that uh, they needed uh, to get some exposure. Uh, and uh, bottom line is I went in to meet with him and with three or uh, two others that were there. And uh, I started, and we didn't have, you remember, we didn't have PowerPoints in those years. So you had to go in for a presentation with these big whiteboards and you'd make them up and you'd take them out of these big uh, <laughs> yep. things that you carried. And uh, <clears throat> so I was setting those up on easels. And this one guy said, Jim, you don't have to go through all this. What have you got? And I said, I've got you. You can have the exclusive rights to the NCAA uh tournament and they, and uh and they said well, ncaa basketball tournament I said yeah uh how many tickets do we get that's the first thing how many tickets do we get and i i hadn't asked walter that so i said 20 uh just made that up and <laughs> and, 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 and he's and they said uh well would they be good tickets i can guarantee they'll be good tickets or we won't have a deal and uh and they said okay how much and I said, a half a million dollars. Now, I understand I told Walter I thought I could get 250 So I said, a half a million dollars. They looked at each other and said, okay, we'll take it. That was a 15-minute conversation. They saw the value in it. Uh, I, and obviously, 
Was that Jim LeMay? No, no. Jim no. LeMay wasn't there He wasn't there yet, uh, okay. It was a guy by the name of Dick O'Hearn. Okay, uh, yep. Who, yep. Who Jim LeMay had worked for. Yep. And uh, Dick O'Hearn was in the meeting. But Bill Ryan, Bill Ryan ran the meeting. Bill Ryan was head of the personal care products division. And uh, he was a guy who had been with P&G, who I had known at P&G. So he already knew me going into the meeting. And uh, so, and, and that, that's how it happened. And so then I sent a, uh, I sent a note uh, to Walter and then I called Walter and I couldn't get him on the phone. And I finally got him on the phone and I said, Walter, uh, I've sold the first one. He said, who to? I said, Gillette. And he said, how much did you get? And I said, half a million dollars. He, he big pause on the other end of the phone. You're kidding me. I said, no, I'm not kidding. Uh, and you think about that and you think about how much that the NCAA was getting in television rights then, which wasn't uh, a lot of money. They were, I think they got $12 million a year, something like that. Uh, and, uh, and we were getting a half a million dollars from one partner. And I think Walter was calculating in his head's, he had made me uh, agree that we could only sell no more than six. And then I got him to agree to increase it to eight and we would have all exclusive categories. So that's how it started. You know, you talk about the, the, the boards at the time when we didn't have presentations. I, I, a few years after I had been doing <clears throat> the college basketball stuff, um, a, a guy who had worked for me was working at, at Turner Broadcasting and Turner wanted to take the in, the NBA that was on Turner on Tuesday nights and Thursday nights and move it to Monday night, you know, once Monday night football was over because Monday was such a a great night as a viewing destination for guys and they thought it would be an easy migration. And, and so, you know, this guy says, I want this agency to come in and pitch. And they were like, well, this guy doesn't know anything about pro basketball. He says, well, he knows about basketball. Let him come in. I remember I took art boards in and and so the the brief is how do you let people know that the NBA will be on Monday nights on TBS? And so I came in with you know a stack of artboards and I picked it up and said, here's what you're going to do: you're going to go to the top 25 ADIs in the country and you're going to put up billboards. And I picked and I flipped it up and the billboard said ABC Monday Night Football. And they're looking at me like I'm nuts. And I said, and you're going to put that up in September. And then in October, and I picked it up, you're going to mark out um, football and you're going to mark out ABC. And in November, you're going to put NBA basketball. And then in December, you're going to put on TBS. And I have one more board. And, and, a, and a young lady in the room said, ABC will sue us. And I flipped up the board and it said, ABC will sue you. <laughs> and I said, and everyone in America will know it. You'll settle out of court, <laughs> but everybody will know you're, you're on Monday night. <laughs> and they said, they said, God, if we weren't owned by T Tom Warner, we'd do this. <laughs> and they didn't do it. They hired Golan Harris, a PR firm. It was so unsuccessful. The NBA's never been on Monday night. So uh, I remember the art board uh, days uh, very, very well. <laughs> hey, let me ask you this, Jim, right now, talking about the committee and talking about Walter Byers perception of the College Football Association and what may have happened. In the pandemic, where so many of the Power Five schools are losing so many millions of dollars, do you think there could be a power play where the Power Five leave the NCAA to create their own men's basketball tournament? Yes, I do. Uh, I don't think there's – I think – I don't have any evidence of this from directly. I've just picked up bits and pieces of it. But uh, – uh, my opinion is that uh, 
you'll find that happen sooner rather than later. Uh, I think there is so much uh, uh, concern or lack of uh, uh, whatever you want to call it uh, uh, with the NCAA that uh, I, I think it'll be sooner rather than later. First of all, uh, the only thing that they need the NCAA for right now is for uh uh, for enforcement, and uh, and I think they can do their own enforcement uh, going forward. Uh, there's so much money in college football, and uh, there's so many decisions that are made uh, by people who are uh, put uh, uh, who are put in charge at the NCAA to make those decisions. And the thing that concerns me and really bothers me is that you've got presidents who have put a president in place at the NCAA. Uh, so the presidents are in control. And yet, can you tell me that the presidents are controlled at a conference when indeed the conferences are run by athletics? And so you've got, uh, you've got, con you've got presidents who are in charge and presidents who are not in charge. And uh, I think the Big Ten found out uh, how uh, who really runs things as it relates to money. Uh, uh, you got these people who are that the universities uh, have to have uh, as donors uh, to their institutions. You've got people who have been very, very, uh, uh, very good for universities in terms of academic buildings and, and academic process and so on and so forth. And yet at the same time, uh, they were turning all these donors off. The Big Ten found out about that, and the Pac-10s, certainly Pac-12, Pac certainly found out about it. So uh, it's 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 unbelievable the process that's going on in college athletics today. And I think and the NFL's found out you can you can play football in this environment. Uh, college uh, football has found out those that are playing has found out they can play in this environment. You just got to be careful. You've got to have. Uh, rules that dictate how these players play and and, uh, and how they practice. Uh, and I know at Kentucky alone, they've done a heck of a good job of keeping all the players uh, COVID-free. So uh, I hope we can come out of this thing properly at the end of the day and that uh, people that are playing competitive sports today are able to get out of it without COVID affecting of the games. Well, I'm I'm also dismayed. You you played. You went to the University of Kentucky on a baseball scholarship. I'm watching so many uh, universities drop sports left and right, and it's just it's just so debilitating. The young people that have worked so hard their whole lives to to be you know a swimmer or a tennis player or a baseball player and and see that happen. And um, you know I'm hopeful that uh, that that we'll figure out a way to to not keep these sports away long term but I just don't know what's going to happen I want to switch gears for a minute you you've worked with a lot of great college basketball coaches over the years especially at UK so I'm going to, I'm going to give you some names and you you tell me a, a little bit about each one all right so I'm going to start with coach Adolph Rupp uh most uh, disciplined uh person I've ever been around in my life uh uh he uh he ran practices uh his favorite saying in practice would be, if you can improve upon the silence, do it. Uh, you never heard any players clapping or cheering or anything. All you heard was a squeak of the, of the sneakers uh, on the floor. Uh, 
Uh, he, he ran every practice uh, with an exact discipline of here's what we're going to do in the first 15 minutes. Here's what we're going to do in the second 15 minutes. Uh, he would have two plays, number, number uh, seven and number eight, number five and number six. And it was nothing more than a double guard around and a double pick on the baseline. And, uh, and uh, I remember a, a, a clinic I went to uh, just to listen to him. And uh, he would say, here's how we run number seven. Here's how we run number eight. And somebody raised their hand and said, coach, why are you showing me how you run your best plays? And he would say, because you can't ever beat it. You can't ever compete it because we'll run it better than anybody. And, uh, and he did. They ran them. They ran their, that double pick ran to such a degree so perfectively. And he would run the same plays over and over and over again in practice. All right, I'm going to mention another one. It was one of his assistants that moved on and coached where I got to coach at Swanee, Lon Varnell. Uh, Lon uh, was Coach Rupp's uh, probably favorite all-time friend. Uh, when Lon Burnell, uh got in business of promoting concerts, Lon Burnell represented uh, Lawrence Welk. And when Memorial Coliseum was going to be opened in uh, 1951, the very first performance by a concert was by Lon Burnell representing Lawrence Welk. Lawrence Welk put on the first concert. And that's because of his friendship with Coach Rupp. They had a very close personal friendship. Joe Hall. Uh, probably the most understated and best coach uh, at UK. Uh, he, for a guy to, uh, to follow a legend like he followed with Coach Rupp, they found out the, you know, UCLA basketball has never been the same. No, they've, they haven't figured it out, have they? It's never <laughs> been the same. But, uh, but Joe Hall, because he played for Coach Rupp, he was a Kentucky guy from Cynthiana. Uh, he, he introduced something that no coach was doing. They would run wind sprints uh, and, uh, before the season started. And, uh, and he would go out and they would time the wind sprints. And that's before you could allow practice to start, but nobody said you couldn't start running. And so he had them running. Coach Rupp never did that. Uh, he also started them with weights. Coach Rupp never did that either. Uh, so he introduced weights to get them stronger, and he introduced wind sprints, and they were always in better physical condition, especially in the early part of the year than any other team. And he was a he used a lot of Coach Rupp's plays, but he also introduced some things of his own, and he, he was a great basketball coach. Eddie Sutton. Uh, probably the best guy with a piece of chalk I ever saw. Uh, he was, uh, he had Coach Iba's uh, defense, and uh, a lot of the people in Lexington didn't like the way they played, but they, the first year he was there, uh, they should have gone to the Final Four. They won 32 games, and, uh, and they had beaten LSU three times during the course of the year, two times in the regular season and one time in the SEC tournament. And they got beat. Kenny Walker was a, a guts of that team, and they lost in the SEC in the NCAA tournament to LSU, I think, by three points. And that's the same LSU team that went on to uh, the Final Four. Uh, he he was he, he was just a great. He, Eddie Sutton uh, got uh, uh, really uh, with the, the, a broad brush of. Uh, badness over him because of the last year he was there when uh, 
somebody put something in a express envelope and it went out to Chris Mills in California and and Eddie was uh, uh, was fired by the university over uh, what had happened in terms of the uh, NCA investigation. But uh, Eddie went on to show what a great coach he was at Oklahoma State. And uh, of course, his is uh, if they had had the induction of the Hall of Fame this year, he would have gone into Hall of Fame with induction. But for all intents and purposes, he's, he's inducted the Hall of Fame and very deserving. He was a great coach. He was a really uh, terrific. Uh, but Kenny Walker, uh, who's become a really good friend of mine, told me that Eddie was the best coach he ever played for. Wow, that's high praise. Okay, so then your good friend, Sam Newton, who's the AD, has to go replace him, and he goes and gets Rick Pitino. Uh, Rick is, without question, the best preparation coach I've ever seen. Uh, I went to a practice with him one day, and he was uh, was in a film study, and uh, they were going to play Utah in, uh, a, in the NCAA tournament, and uh, he said, come go with me. And I went in and and uh, and he they had a guy. Uh, what the heck was the guy's name at Utah? He was a really good player. Uh, anyway, uh, he said, watch what he does. And uh, sure enough, if you he said, I want you to step on his foot and make him go uh, the way he can't shoot. And uh, and uh, and and they did. And uh, he only got, I think, uh, Keith Van Horn was yeah, his name. Yeah, great point. And uh, Van Horn was his name. And he, I think he ended up getting six or eight points because they kept stepping on his foot and making them go the wrong way. That's how much of a fanatic he was on preparation. Plus, I never saw a coach uh, get a team ready uh, to play like he did uh, with in terms of their conditioning. They were in better condition than any team they played, which is why they would run the press like they did all over the floor on a continuous basis. Uh, and uh, the first year was there, uh, Kansas beat them like a drum because they kept throwing the ball over top of the press and, and Rick kept using the press. Obviously, that worked in the long run, uh, which is the team that then ended up winning the Final Four in 1996 in New York uh, with uh, probably, of all the Kentucky teams I've seen, was probably the best team. That was Mashburn, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it was uh no, it was uh it was uh Tony Delk and oh, yeah. uh, and, yep. and uh, Walker Walker and yep. Antoine Walker and yep. uh and they played at the Meadowlands. It was the last game that was played in a made for college arena, which is the Meadowlands. Tubby Smith. Best human being I've ever been around in coaching by far. Uh probably uh uh, the classiest guy, uh, the, the best human being. Uh, uh, I've never been around a coach that was a better human being than Tubby Smith. And Cal, John Calipari. Uh, best recruiter uh, I've ever seen. Best sales guy, best marketing guy I've ever been around. Uh, he, uh, he knows more about marketing than you or I do. Uh, he he's, uh, has a gut feel for what's going on in the world, what's going on in the country, what's going on in basketball. Uh, he uh, is able to sell recruits on what he's doing. and He's been very, very successful. He's got more players playing in the NBA. He's got more players playing in the NBA right now than any other coach by far. Uh, and the proof's in the pudding in terms of him being able to get 
guys ready for the tournament. I've been getting ready for the NBA uh, by the by the way he's been able to deliver on that. And if you think about uh, think about Jamal Murray, uh, about him carrying Denver on his back, uh, and uh, and all these players have played for Cal will tell you that he got them ready for the for the NBA. Yeah, I think he convinced them that <clears throat> there were only so many superstars in the NBA, but if you play defense and rebound, you you can play 15 years and make a whole lot of money. Um, and and so he got guys to buy in to play in defense and rebounding. Um, no, and, no question. Jim, the virus has changed our lives in, in more ways than I even care to admit. You and Pat are so outgoing, so social. How have you guys had to adjust during this time? Well, I've learned – uh, what a great person Pat is, although I already knew it. I've learned now because we have stayed in. We have not gone out. Uh, we, we have, I think we've been out to eat one time uh, since March. Uh, we, we stay by ourselves. Uh, she's, her immune system is not very good because she's on her third pacemaker. And so I haven't wanted to do one thing that would injure that. And she hasn't wanted to do one thing that would injure me. I'm 82 and she's 80. We'll be a year older in November. And, uh, so we've learned to spend a lot of time together. Uh, I've, uh, gotten a lot done in terms of writing. Uh, I love to write and I love to read. And, uh, so I've done a lot more. I stay on the phone with a lot of people who call me all the time for advice and counsel. I still, uh, advise a lot. I've never refused a young person who's ever called me about meeting with me at all. And that still happens. And I'm still meeting on a continuous basis, either by Zoom or uh, if they want to come to my house, uh, they got to put a mask on and uh, we sit uh, far apart from each other. I do that uh, fairly often, but uh, I have no, we have not, we, we, we just don't go out, Rick. Uh, we, we stay to ourselves and feel like this, this uh, pandemic will be over sometime in the future. Uh, and, uh, in the meantime, we want to stay healthy. Well, it's interesting. You know, Charlotte said to me, she said, honey, I married you for better or for worse, but not for this. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, in, in 2019, I traveled 309 days. And, and, and so I have a history of dating my wife and, uh, we're, we're, we're more, no, but it's, I've, you know, obviously, uh, we've talked about this a lot. Um, I, I've very much outkicked my coverage. I married the right woman and we've done the same thing. We, we just haven't gone anywhere. We, her parents are in their late 80s and very vulnerable, and and we've gone back and forth to see them in Live Oak, um, and we just said we weren't going to risk, you know, taking anything down to there. Um, I, I've been a little dismayed though with the selfishness of people. Um, it, it, you know, it, it's it's not hard to wear a mask. It's not hard to to do the right thing. It's been disappointing, I think, to see some of the behavior. Well, the, it's uh, it's part of the what we live in in this country these days, and uh, the unfortunate part about it is that uh, uh, people people can say that I I have found that most of the friends that I've got that Pat and I have uh, are trying to do things the right way uh, and uh, and trying to make sure that they continue to do things the right way, and when you really think about uh, the social social aspect of our country and what people are used to. I think, uh, I think the country is coming out of it uh, fine. Uh, you can't, uh, 
Uh, you think about losing 200,000 people, but on the other hand, when you think about that as a percentage of the nation's population and what it could be, uh, it's, uh, it's a toll. And I, I don't believe the numbers from the other countries. I, don't, I, be, I believe it's much worse than a lot of other places than what they say it is. But uh, with this, this too eventually will pass and uh, we will find a way out of it. And the country's too great for it not to happen. Well, I, I thank you again for being with us today. Listen, I, I thank you for sharing thoughts on Tom Jernstead, um, a, a guy we lost way, way too early. I appreciate all your wisdom. Um, stay well, my friend. Again, the book is Changing the Game by Jim Host. Uh, get the book. Uh, get this- it through. Get it to order it. You can order it through jimhostbook.com. You can just look it up, uh, Changing the Game, jimhostbook.com, and I autograph all the books, and I'm glad to do it. And and also, I, you'd be surprised, Rick, at the number of people, young people especially, who have bought the book, who call me and ask me specific questions. And I'm available for any young person anytime for advice and counsel. Well, you've been a great mentor to me. You continue to be a great mentor to many, many other people, and I appreciate you. And thanks for being with us today from the bridge. Love to Charlotte. Thanks, buddy. Bye. Bye-bye. Let's jump back up on the old soapbox. We've talked a lot about mentors and colleagues today. This one is from my book, Analog Advice in a Digital World, and it's entitled, Even the Lone Ranger Did Not Travel Alone. Business and life is a team sport. When I recruit an employee, I gravitate to those who have played a team sport in the past or have played in a band, or been in a theater group. The kind of people who understand that you have to play together to accomplish great things. Parts of our educational system are archaic. Too many things are designed for everyone to do their own work, which rarely happens in business or in life. We all have to interact in order to accomplish big things. My favorite play in basketball is the assist. I love a great pass that leads to a basket, much more than the basket itself. Teams that share the ball and hit the open man win more games. So here's some questions for you. Do you make others better? Are you the kind of teammate everyone knows they can count on in good times and bad alike? Are you happy for the successes of others? So how's your assist to scoring ratio? And that's today's view from the soapbox. Let's close with another place to eat on the road with Rick. Uh, The very first Final Four I attended with my wife, Charlotte, was the 1985 NCAA Final Four in Lexington, Kentucky. And that was the famous Final Four where Villanova upset Georgetown in Rupp Arena. We stayed at a very special place and have returned there a few times. It's the Shaker Village at Pleasant Hill, Kentucky. Now, the Shakers were a religion. Now, interestingly, they were a religion that did not believe in procreation. So the religion died out. You know, when you're not reproducing new converts, uh, it's easy for the 
religion to go away. Uh, they, they were called the Shakers because when they uh, did their singing, they danced and shook. And this was uh, an interesting uh, religion, but they were an interesting people in that they built uh, amazing, classic, simple furniture, and they also produced and sold seeds. Well, they established a farm near Lexington, Kentucky, that has now been restored as a resort. And their restaurant called The Trustee's Table serves wonderful farm-to-table foods like amazing fried chicken, fresh vegetables actually grown on the farm, and fresh-baked breads, along with their famous Shaker Village lemon pie. Stop by this place the next time you're in the Bluegrass State. That's a wrap for today. Thanks once again to my friend Jim Host for sharing with us. We hope to see you next week from the bridge.